it was a pretty dark time, if I'm being honest. I mean, I, I, I had definitely was having a nervous breakdown without a shadow of a doubt. I kind of lost who I was at that time. I'd lost all sense of direction. I, I couldn't get up in the morning. I found it really hard getting to work. I'd have panic attacks before going into work. This is the company that a year and a half earlier, I was skipping into work and just was so excited about everything. The world was our oyster. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. I'm Dan Murray Serta, and you're listening to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media, the UK startup podcast. Imagine this you start a company, get a few lucky breaks, you're early to market, you get some very flattering press, and find your product flying off the shelves. Within two years, just two years, you've raised £35 million in investment, been valued at £140 million. Oh, and to top it all off, you've IPO'd in record-breaking time, just after two years after you began. Fairy tale stuff, right? Well, today I'm talking to someone who rode that roller coaster and lived to tell the tale, and his experience is not really what you might be expecting. Kuba Wicherek co-founded D2C mattress company Eve Sleep in 2015 with his cousin Yash and found himself at the centre of a company experiencing massive growth. We'll talk all about that journey, but mostly its effect on him and his mental health. But first, let's go back to 2015 and find out what that initial spark was for creating Eve Sleep. My spark was my cousin. I'm not going to lay claim to having the idea, uh, giving birth to the idea. That was Yash, my very smart, younger cousin. He was running a, a, a previous business, which was selling, amongst other things, mattresses. He called me up. He was living in San Francisco at the time. So it was a Skype call very late at night. Very odd to get a Skype call from him. So I, I thought there's either been a problem in the family or this is definitely worth taking either way. And he actually asked me for some advice. He was like, I want to start this company. And can you recommend any good branding people? Kind of not really realising that I spent my career working in advertising and branding. He knew me as a photographer. And I just said, look, it's, it's, it's what I do. Like, are you asking me in a really roundabout way to help you? He's like, oh, I didn't know. So um, I think by the end of the call, I floated the idea of uh, becoming a co-founder. And that's how it started. Got it. Okay. So what you're saying is he invented the mattress. Yeah. <laughs> End of podcast. All right. It's been lovely to meet you. <laughs> See you Thank soon. You. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> and and in fact, I'll build on that story. Um, when the Skype call started, you know, laptop on the in the kitchen, you know, the kids were in bed. It was about 10 o'clock at night, UK time. Sarah, my amazing wife, was kind of overhearing, eavesdropping, you know, because she could hear the call. And she was like, I was kind of going, well, you know what, I'll, I'll keep... 
I think about great people. I mean, I'd love to do it. I was working at Channel 4 at the time. I had my dream job at Channel 4. Sarah sort of put the computer on mute and she was like, what are you doing, you dick? She's like, why don't you do the brand? So I was like, I'm mute. I'll do it, Yash. You know, that's literally how it, how it was. It was, a, it was an amazing call. And I, I, I think that kind of a few days later, I actually resigned. So it happened so quickly from that point onwards. That's awesome. Okay. Thank you for sharing, you know, a little bit more colour to it. So, you know, you're the brand guy. So, you know, in your role as co-founder of EVE, you started as the chief brand officer. So how would you describe EVE to someone who knew nothing about it? And how, how is that today versus when you started? It was a, such a simple concept when we started. It was, we wanted to be very clear with our proposition. You know, we didn't want any showrooms, any markups. You know, we wanted to create one mattress. So the proposition was one mattress that you can try out on your own home, trial it for 100 days, 100 nights. And if you don't like it, we'll pick it up again for free. That's how confident we are in the brilliance of the product. So yeah, it was really simple. And I mean, it, it, the core proposition hasn't really changed. It's just the business has become a lot more complicated and there have been many, many more products added to the business lineup. But at its heart, the mattress is still the key, the core product. And we still give a hundred nights trial for people to trial it out in their own home. I say we, it's like, I'm not there anymore. I just, it's we, isn't it? It's my brand. I founded it, so I can say we. Let's talk about the first month and then the first year. What was the difference between the two and how you'd get customers? Is the launch from when you click live on your website or is launch from when you sell your, your first mattress? And I think that's a, that kind of very cryptic answer to your question. It's not an answer. Start point, the answer to the question is, is what happened in reality. We, we mattress went live, I think, at the beginning of January and we didn't sell anything because no one knew about us. Uh, you know, we didn't even feature on Google. It just, nothing was happening. It's a little bit like that clip from Joy with the mop heads when they start flying out the door. We, we didn't really sell anything. I mean, I think we sold four. It's like my mum, Yash's mum, and I, I think I bought a couple on my credit card, you know, just to, just to show that something was going to happen to the investors. By this point, we hadn't even finalised our, our, seed, our seed investment round. So we were raising, gosh, I'm not great with figures, but about 650 seed, something like that, 650K with two VC funds. And we hadn't really sold any product. I mean, we, we had a great brand, or we thought it was a great brand. You know, a brand is in the eye of the consumer, not in the eye of the brand builder, by the way. But, you know, all the makings of a great brand, great website. We invested all our money really in, in, in the site. The product was amazing. It just wasn't selling because no one knew about it. Then on Valentine's Day, so about a month, about a month and a half later, we got two pieces in the Telegraph. We got a piece in the business section. Uh, it was a really nice long piece. I'll never forget the interview. I, I did the interview actually because Yash was in the States with Rebecca Burns Calendar, brilliant journalist who interviewed me. And then we had a a small piece in the magazine in the Telegraph, kind of, you know, they they do that little, I can't remember what it's called in PR terms, but it was like a little thumbnail image of the Eve. It was like brands, cool brands to buy this month. So we we had the picture, the yellow mattress, and it was like you turned a tap on. That's when it all took off. And that was the Valentine's Day. So we, we talk about Valentine's Day. I'm letting you into all the internal secrets now. We talk about Valentine's Day as being the launch of Eve, because that's when we sold our, our first mattress. Never spoken about this. Did you, know, did you know that Heights was incorporated on Valentine's Day? No way. Yeah. Our birthday is the 14th of February as well. We, we, both have a, a, we both share an important day. It was not, a wonderful Not with moment, our wives. It, it was a, I mean, not Valentine's Day... It wasn't a wonderful moment because it was Valentine's Day. It was a wonderful moment. Don't let, hopefully Sarah won't be listening back to this. It was a wonderful day because it was our first sales day. And I think we sold 24 on that day, something like that, you know, power of PR. 
And I'll, I'll again, I'll never forget it. We were in we we're in Tate Modern with the family, and Yash called me, going, "We're we got coverage, you know, from the state." So he'd been up all night, you know. We we got coverage because he saw it online, and then like another folk, we sold our first mattress, you know, that isn't a family. Two minutes, another one, another one. It was, and then it was throughout the day, and it was like a drug that you kind of any founder who who has sort of is is selling stuff knows the feeling when you every sale it, it never goes away. It just feels brilliant. So. From that moment to IPO, how many months? 26, I think. It's nuts. If you think about that first month and a half, you know, just a handful of mattresses, barely even that, to your first PR campaign to literally just over two years later, you were live as a public company. So that, as we've talked about already, but let's reiterate it, is the fastest ever for a British company. Fastest ever retail float. I'm sure there have been faster tech floats, but it's the fastest retail float. Fair enough. Fastest ever retail float. So whilst I think that is, you know, remarkable and everything else, can you talk to me about the culture inside the company in the first year versus the second year? Because I'm sure, you know, the plan wasn't to IPO from the first moment you launched, right? When did that moment happen? What was the culture like before this decision and then after that decision? And how does your like feeling of, of ownership and control of the beast you've created like change psychologically? Right, there, there's quite a lot to unpick there. I, I, I figured out three questions, I think, so I'll take them one at a time. So the first was, how did the culture change in the, from the first or second year? And, and the answer is, it changed immensely. I don't think it's it, just because the IPO, I, I can't put the blame on the IPO for everything, for all the ills in my life. But the culture did change a lot. I mean, I, I would say the first year was was absolutely incredible, you know, culturally, really. And the reason being, we were everything was so exciting. Every day we would skip into the office because it was, there was something new, you know. There, it wasn't just about how fast we were growing. We were growing, you know, really fast. It was just packed so full of adventures, you know. Me and Yash were just, you know, we were having an amazing time and and we were surrounded by amazing people. I guess the sort of currency of the office was was laughter and just just joy. It was wonderful, really. And, you know, the brand that I created was all around positivity and energy. I mean, we we called it an energy brand and not a sleep brand, right? So that it, it was very aligned, as as culture should be, with the brand itself. To answer your second question, there was a moment where everything changed. I mean, it was like if you were to make a film of Eve, I'm not saying it'll make an interesting film or write a book about it or do a podcast, really. It's that moment, you know, they, they say when you're writing scripts that there's kind of key three key moments. It was one of the key moments where you know everything is, is going to be different. And that was when our chairman, we met him for the first time, he, he then became our chairman, he wasn't then, was introduced to us by one of the VC companies and... He came in uh, about a year into the life of Eve and met us. We had a fantastic meeting with him. I mean, we were all buzzing. It was brilliant. You know, we had half an hour scheduled and we ended up being in the room for two, two and a half hours and it flew by. But the crux of it was he said, there's three things you have to do. You have to get a CFO because at the time we had a finance director and, you know, the difference between finance director and CFO, massive, you know, strategic role. And he's like, I've got a great person and someone he worked with at his previous company, who was the CFO there. And he was a brilliant person and has remained a, a very close friend since and changed the game for us. So we were like, condition one, great. Introduce us to him. We're sure he's great. 
Condition number two was was you raise a lot more money than you're raising at the moment with the via your VC partners, and I'll introduce you to Neil Woodford, and he will uh, invest in you, I'm sure, because he had just done a big raise with Purple Bricks. And the third is that you float the company, you IPO it in really, really quick, record quick time. And that, that third one was like, what? Take it public. It really floored us. And, and I think we, I think it was just Yash and I in that meeting. I can't remember if any of the other co-founders were there, but we kind of walked out knowing we would IPO the company without really discussing whether it was a good idea or not. I mean, I think our egos really answered the question for us. And we were both like, wow, you know, two cousins, we've always wanted to create a company together. Now someone's saying we can make it public. That's kind of the moment at, at which I think everything changed. And how many months in was that? That was about a year and a bit in, maybe a year and three or four months in from launch. I mean, crazy early. And how much money had you raised at this point? So just take us through this journey. So I know you said you're not great with this, but broadly speaking, do you know roughly how much you'd raised at this point and how much was being offered in this round as part of him coming in as a chairman? And, you know, he was bringing in good investors, if I remember from speaking to you at the time as part of this as well. It wasn't just go do it and I'll leave you there. It was like, go do it and this is how I'll help you do it. I, I can't say how much he put in, but but we'd raised we'd raised approximately three and a half million at this point. We We did a sort of a relatively small seed and then a, a Series A. We, we'd also done a deal with Channel Four, which wasn't cash. So, so we we did a growth fund deal. So we were on we were on TV really early. So, so that I'm excluding that from the three and a half million cash that we'd raised, more or less, give or take half a million. I love saying things like that. Then he put in his own a big chunk of his own money. You know, that first meeting, he said, "I'm going to put this much money in." We we're like, "Wow." That's a lot of money. Uh, but yeah, we, we had about probably about two, two and a half in the bank at this point. We went on to raise a lot more, though, Dan, obviously. Yeah. So, so, so keep going then. So keep going. So tell me about your fundraising journey now from this moment to going public. Yeah, we, we raised, including, including the, the float, including the money we raised. So, so we raised 35 million at the IPO. But including private and public money, I think Eve have probably raised in excess 65 million, something like that. Yeah, in three or four years. It's just wild, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and, and that's largely, I have to say again, I'd, I'd, I'd love to kind of take credit for that. And we, we all played our parts in the business because it's, the brand was great and Sarah did an amazing job on all communications and, all, and PR. And we had a very strong founding team. There's no doubt about that. But Yash was a like a superhuman money raiser. I mean, he, he was very, very good at raising money. He was schooled at Rocket Internet. He, he had his numbers down like that. He, he had investors cowering quite literally in meetings, and it's normally the other way around. He was very good at raising money. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. 
And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So let's get to the big day. So you get to firstly build this brand that you're really proud of. Most importantly, you know, you had this lovely positioning with Eve, brilliant ads with amazing copywriting, you know, all about positioning. You know, it's not a sleep brand. It's about a new start. You know, it's about the mornings. We're a morning brand, you know, a beautiful, a a great night's sleep, you know, precedes a brilliant day ahead. You know, it's that really lovely tone and energy and the bright yellow and all of these things that, you know, I know you work so hard on crafting and really was what separated the brand out from the other other brands that won't be named. And then the reality is you don't really have a different business when it comes down to it to anyone else. There is no difference between Eve. There is no difference between Simba, between Casper, but you're all doing an incredibly, incredibly good job of trying to articulate that you're all very different from each other and that there's more to it than just brand. That story plays out pretty well, doesn't it, towards the IPO. As in, that is actually capturing the market, that is capturing the sentiment. The metrics look brilliant. It makes loads of sense. You get to IPO and it all goes well. Is that right? But I mean, pretty much. But the big thing to remember, Dan, is is there weren't many competitors when we were in the run-up to IPO. Counter to what many of our competitors will have you believe, we were the first. We were the first here in the UK by about over a year. Simba in their comms say, "Oh, we were the first UK. We had the market to ourselves about thirteen months. That's bullshit. We were the first, and and not that I'm proud of being the first, but we were the first. But what that gives you is first mover advantage, and it is an advantage, whatever anyone tells you. So the the run up to IPO, the Simba were very small and had had, or certainly in awareness, I don't, didn't have sight of their numbers, but certainly in terms of brand awareness, I, I knew we were by far had the biggest awareness. We were by far the biggest brand. We'd been around for longest. I think Simba were maybe three, four months into UK market when we when we floated. Emma weren't around at all. Casper hadn't launched, I don't think, in the UK because I remember at the IPO the roadshow you do, which is a whole another story. Maybe we could do another podcast on that. That was insane, the IPO roadshow. But we were being asked, what happened to Casper come to the UK? I mean, it was it was such a young market and we were lucky enough that we were the first. But you get to IPO, what happens that day? You know, you've gone through a little bit of a journey as a founder where I presume you were getting paid fuck all. If not, you were doing it wrong. 
Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And suddenly, like, but within within side two years, you're a paper millionaire, and then some, right? Yeah, and and it was it was look, it was an incredible time because of that. I, I we were swept up in this insane thing that was happening to us, right? I mean, so many parts played into it, and and I mean, the IPO was like the culmination of that. But you know, we were we effectively didn't really see our families for six months before the IPO. And the IPO was in May, May 17th, by the way. We were swept up in this crazy IPO machine. So you do the roadshow for six months. You are pitching to big funds all over the country, you know, in Scotland, Edinburgh, all over London. We were getting picked up by a people carrier at seven. You get home at seven at night. You've done 10 pitches in that day. I didn't see my family, literally. And, and all the while you were hanging out with, it was me, my cousin, our chairman, and our CFO, the four of us. It was like a crazy intense time. All the while, throughout the six months of doing the roadshow, it's like, we're going to float this. We think it's going to float this, it's going to float that. And all the while, all of us individually are like calculating, crikey, that means I'm going to be worth X million. You know, it was an insane time. And all the while, all of our egos are growing, right? And it's like, we're the untouchables. I mean, God, I'm going to be worth 20 million on paper. I think at one point I was worth like 18 million on paper. And then the IPO the day of the IPO, you know, we were pitching two days or no, we were pitching a day before the IPO. So we're knackered. We've done six months of nonstop pitching. I mean, nonstop. It was just the most intense day. Maybe one of one of the more intense days of, of my life. I mean, I wouldn't say the happiest day because that would be kids being born and marrying Sarah. And But it was, you know, it was, it was definitely an intense day. And we had family there. We couldn't have everyone from Eve there, unfortunately, because at this point we had about 150 employees. There was a maximum amount of people that could come to the stock exchange, but it was amazing. Me and Yash kind of pressed the button for days trading. Yeah, it was it was an insane day. So you've got this experience where, in theory, you're worth a lot of money. You know, I met you during this process, and we met in therapy. We met in group therapy. The first time I'd ever been to group therapy, and there you were. We were both having a hard times, but different kind of hard times. Really connected. And been friends ever since. But, you know, I, I know that you'd been through the absolute ringer and your mental health had really suffered drastically. I mean, you look totally different to how you look now. You looked unhappy. Yeah, I, I was unhappy. Yeah. So I think it's really important to go through this as well, right? This is a guy who, on the outside, what startup founder wouldn't give their left hand to be able to tell everyone that they started a company two years ago, floated it on the stock exchange and their shares are worth 20 million already. Yeah. But that's not how it was. So take us through what happened. It, it is a complex one to answer because there are many there are many factors that, that played into my, I guess, my, my state of mind at the time. I, I think one of them was what you pinpointed in an earlier question, you know, where the eve of year one just wasn't the eve of year two. And, and it was we were put on just a different trajectory after it was like, you're going to raise loads of money and float the company. And suddenly we were hell bent on this, on this course of action. And, you know, it's that kind of by any means necessary that immediately makes it much harder to build the brand that you, you have this wonderful optimistic vision of just the perfect brand. And, and, and that was hard to achieve. So that, that didn't rest easy with me on, on how we had to make decisions that I wouldn't have made if it wasn't like, look, we're going to float this thing, we're going to be rich. And, you know, part of what happened was I, I started not listening to those around me that I have a lot of love and respect for, some of whom you know. Um, I mean, you know, Sarah, Dan, my wife, who 
was a core part of Eve, but she wasn't, she definitely wasn't part of the journey, the IPO journey. She was frozen out of that and, and I'll have to live with that forever. People around me like Silas, who you also know, another shout out to Silas Amos, who is one of the brightest brand brains I've ever had the, the pleasure to work with, was advising me on this isn't quite the brand that you built, Kuba. You know, people around me I stopped listening to really. And I guess just kind of this goal of being rich and having loads of money and floating thing, it, it's not, I mean, I never achieved it because I'm not rich, but it, it's kind of not all it's cracked up to be. I guess there's a positive lining for everyone. It's like, you know what? Money does not make you happy or the pursuit of money certainly does not make you happy. And I think it, it kind of, the penny dropped about around about the time I met you. And it also compounding that is this intense pressure of having a business which went from 12 employees, 150 in just over a, in a year and a half, right? It was hard to maintain culture when you got a business that big. So there was lots of factors really that led to my not being particularly happy at that point in my life, which, which should have been, like you say, you know, on the outside, it was like, come on, you're floating your own company, you're rich on paper, you've got a wonderful family. It just wasn't, it just wasn't a happy time. Sorry for such a crass question, but I think this is actually super interesting. How is it possible that you're not wealthy? Like, How could you float a company for that much money as the founder and not come away with the wealth? So when people float companies, they, they will normally take some money off the table. So, so you raise a secondary raise. We struggled for whatever reason. It may be connected to the competition creeping in, but we struggled to fill the book, as they call it, to, to raise. We did raise the primary, which was 35 million. We managed to achieve that, which is amazing. But there was no extra money for the founders to take anything off the table. And, and we were also advised by all around us that even if there was, it's not a good look. You know, you don't want to float your company and, and take some money off the table. That's the point at which we could have all taken a few million off at least. You know, when you then float a company, you don't have money, you have shares in a company, which is valued at whatever the market values it at, right? You know, supply and, it's a classic supply and demand model. So the share price when we floated, I had in the region of, 10, again, this is public knowledge, so I can talk about it. It's not a crass question, by the way. 10, 11 million shares. When we floated, it was £1.50. Well, it was a pound, then it went up to £1.50 very, very quickly. So on paper, you're worth £15 million. But in reality, you can't sell those shares because you're still in the company. You're legally not allowed to sell the shares. We weren't legally allowed to sell any shares two years in. So you come out of a situation where you're paying yourself sod all because you're the founder and we paid ourselves enough to get by less than I was earning at Channel 4 for full disclosure, by the way, like five years, four years or X years earlier, two years earlier. And then when I finally did leave even, I was able to sell shares. The share price had gone from pound fifty to 4p, 3p. So you kind of go from being worth on paper 15 million to being worth 50, you know, whatever, 100k, 50k, whatever. I'm not good at maths. Not very much anyway. Enough to make a difference to any normal person's life. But it was a fall from grace and my ego took a battering, which was the best possible thing that could have happened to me, I think. Join us after this quick break to hear about what happened after Eve's IPO and when things began to really, truly go sour for Kuba and how he navigated a challenging and often lonely path through media frenzies, boardroom battles and mental health challenges. You don't want to miss this. So you've gone public and ultimately, like you just mentioned, you know, the price has gone up for a period of time. But then I don't know if it was one of those things because I was friends with you at this time, but 
I just remember everything I was reading was about Eve's share price, and I don't remember there being so much interest in a share price in general in most things. And suddenly everywhere, everyone was talking about your terrible share price. It's dropping again. It's dropping again. What was happening? And how did it affect you and your co-founder, you know, your cousin, Yash? How did it affect your relationship and with your board? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, this is this was even after I, I met you in therapy. So, so this is when it got really bad for me personally. I mean, what happened really was it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So when everyone says how bad the share price is and everyone was writing about it, we were the kind of poster, the poster boys and girls of, of the startup world, you know, not only because of the float, but we kind of startup of the year, we were winning all these awards and we floated the company and there was a lot of interest in Eve anyway. We floated insanely early and I, I guess the press and the markets were kind of waiting for us to fail. I, I do think there was a little bit of that. People was waiting for us to fail. Now, the other thing that happened is Simba, Casper, these guys who when we were the lead up to IPO, which is long, by the way, you know, six to eight months, they were very young. By the time we IPO'd and, and a few months after IPO, they were now doing incredibly well. So our marketing was, we had to work a lot harder. Our cost of acquiring customers was going up. So it, it was getting increasingly more expensive and increasingly more difficult to acquire new customers. Their awareness, the brand awareness was going up as well. There was more than one player in town. And the market was kind of screwed itself, really, because what was a very beautiful and pure proposition, your very first question, don't go to a store where you've got loads of mattresses. Come to us. We've got one mattress. Try it in your own home. Suddenly you've got 10 guys going, come to us. We've got one mattress. And it it becomes, a, the water is really muddied. So all of that led to the share price just going vroom. Now, it didn't, it didn't fall to the depths it's fallen now. There was something else that happened. And, and I think the moment that it really tumbled was when Yash, who was a CEO, my cousin, was asked to leave the business. So he was asked to leave the business and the markets just went like, oh my God, they just completely lost trust really in, in, the, in the company. Now it kind of went, it was a real fall. I think it went from a pound to 30p. And then a, a few months later, it was down at 4p. The pack of cards came down, basically. Whose decision was it to have him leave? And why, like, why do it? As in, there's so much risk involved in that. I understand it, of course, if there's this like magic plan you know, with some unbelievable CEO that's going to take it like flying, but that doesn't seem to be what happened if it then went down to 4P, right? And I'm guessing these things are normal mistakes, but what what really happened? Like, why did this stuff happen? And why did Yash accept leaving? I don't want to go into too many exact details, but I can tell you broad brushstroke. I mean, I don't think it was handled very well. There, there was a lot of tension between us and the board anyway, right? Because what happens when, when you have a public company, you have to create a board. So before it was like, it felt like us and our mates on the board because it was basically the VCs who we were really pally with. It's a completely different proposition when you float a company. You have to have non-execs and, and you, have to form a, you have to form a proper board, right? There were tensions, I think, quite quickly. And it was partly because Yash and I are both, I mean, you know, both of us, we're both very strong-willed people. We both come from very different worlds, so we were disagreeing on, on certain things anyway. But we were quite united with the board, actually. But I think that the, there was tensions between us and the board. So the tensions internally between me, Yash, and the various departments and the brand, we want to take it here. And rightly, Yash had the pressure of this public company now that the public had invested in and had bought shares in. And he had to, he had to make it go the right way rather than the wrong way. So there was a lot of very complicated tensions, really. It became really untenable, really, for him, I think, to stick around long term. He was asked to leave. 
whether that was a good decision or not, I'm going to reserve judgment on this podcast. But it's certainly, I think, what sent the markets into a jitter. And certainly one thing I will say, for the record, is I think it was handled in- incredibly badly. And, and you know, with, with all of these things, what what the perception of the company is so important. You know, it's all smoke and mirrors, really. You know, any company valuations are. But I think it's it's PR, it's perception. And I don't think, I think if you handle something like that badly, then it's going to cause a tumble. And, and that's what happened, basically. So what was it like for you? Because you got stuck, basically, in the company that you founded, but your best friend, your cousin, your co-founder, your compadre has just been fired. And you have to stay there. And what, put on a brave face? Be honest? What was going on with your mental health at the time? Like, how were you interacting and interfacing it's a really interesting question. I think I think it look, I stayed because I wanted to stay. I mean, I could have walked at that point and, and it crossed my mind, obviously, you know. We'd built this thing together and well, not just us, I mean with others as well. But you know, it was a really difficult time. I chose to stay because I wanted to stay. It was a very odd conversation I would check when I was told about him leaving, I was then sort of I was I was given the ultimate, almost it felt in hindsight, it was an ultimatum. It didn't feel like it then actually. He, but it was like, are you gonna stay or go? And if you're gonna stay, I need to know you're committed, you know. I think the board were terrified if I left as well, then that then that would just, I mean, that would be, they didn't know that the share price would tumble, but they did know that if two of the core founders left, it would be big trouble. I stayed, I guess, because I love the brand still. I still thought that I could really fix it, you know, in terms of the share price slowly going down at this point. I, I thought I could, you know, the power of brand, you know, build it up. Um, but ultimately I stayed because I, I wanted to, because I... Loved the company still. A lot of the people I loved. I mean, the, the people at Eve were just incredible. And I was a bit scared of, about leaving. I didn't I didn't really know what I would do. And I guess there was a little bit of me which didn't want to let people down as well. So, yeah, it was it was a tough decision, but it, I, I kind of gave it a day. I did say to them, I, I need a day because this has all been a bit of a shock. I, I went to see Ash, make sure he was OK and had a chat to him and, and then kind of said, are you OK if I stick around? And he said, yeah, and I lasted another year. And then I resigned. <laughs> what made you resign? I realised that I was not, I was relatively in, ineffective at Eve at that point. Eve had outgrown me, if you like. Um, my strength wasn't running a public company uh, or being at a very senior position in the public company. I brought Cheryl in, the current, well, she's now CEO, um, who's brilliant. She was just great when we interviewed her. And, and it was my my plan to get out of the business, really. I didn't want to leave it high and dry. I mean, I still had 10 million shares in it, right? So I, I had a vested interest. But I realised that I couldn't make the change I needed to make for whatever reason. And there was a lot of emotion wrapped up in it. And I, I think I think I'd probably, about six months after Yash left, I'd hit rock bottom as well, you know, really rock bottom. I just kind of realised that it was either my health and my family or staying at Eve. So I'm, I made the right choice, you know, I resigned. What is rock bottom? It's pr- it was a pretty dark time, if I'm being honest. I mean, I I, I don't want to put a label. I mean, I, I had definitely was having a nervous breakdown without a shadow of a doubt. I kind of lost who I was at that time, who, you know, I, I'd lost all sense of direction. I I couldn't get up in the morning. I, I, I found it really hard getting to work. I'd have panic attacks before going into work. This is the company that a year and a half earlier I was skipping into work and just was so excited about everything. The world was our oyster. My family knew that I wasn't right. I wasn't the same. Sarah knew that especially. Even my kids picked up on it. I've got four kids. They picked up on it. 
yeah, it was a really, it was a really difficult time. Actually, I, I went to, I went to GP because what really happened, I'll tell you the full story. Actually, I resigned and it, my resignation wasn't accepted. I can't believe I'm talking about this in the public forum, which isn't even a thing. I'm like, is that a thing? I didn't think that was a thing, but they're like, it's not, no, we're not accepting resignation. You cannot resign from this company. I was like, okay. And I kind of walked out board and I was like, what the hell just happened there? About a week later, I went to GP and I was like, I can't get up. I'm, you know, because when you're very depressed, it has physical, you know, the symptoms are physical. So you think it's a physical thing that's happening to you. It's actually a mental thing, but you know, it's like, I can't sleep. You know, I'm shaking. I don't know why I'm shaking. I'm, there's something physically wrong with me. And the GP, uh, they do this checklist for anyone who's been with mental health problems, the GP. And it's like, apart from suicide, which I hadn't considered, ev every single box I ticked. You know, she asked you, it's, a, it's like a 10 point questionnaire. And she said, uh, you're ill, I need to sign you off from work. So she signed me off for two weeks. Then I went back to see her, then another two weeks. And then I was off for about four months from Eve. And then I came back after four months and they were like, uh, Kuba, are you ever gonna come back? So I came back and I was like, look, I'm leaving. You just got to accept that I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. They hadn't announced it to the markets because I was I was ill. So I was, I was still the founder and there and, and a senior position there. But then I, I worked out a kind of communications plan with Eve on how to how and when to announce it. Well, for, to the markets. And then you have to, it's really funny with public companies, you have to time it because everything has to, everything that you say has to be said at the same time. Otherwise it's insider trading. So you can't tell the staff that Cuba's leaving and then announce it to the markets a week later, that's insider trading. So you have to be, it's like a military operation. So figured out a plan with them and that was it. So that's that's kind of my last months, my last chunk of time at Eve was, was quite a sad time really because I never had that big leaving do. I never, I kind of went out with, um, a bit of a kind of nervous breakdown, really. That's how it happened. How did you handle that period, feeling so in despair, but without even legally being able to talk to your friends about it, so to speak, right? What does that feel like? I mean, awful, in a word. I think that my refuge is my family, really. And it was Sarah and the kids that got me through it. You know, I was cocooned in the home. It was like my own little lockdown then, you know, before lockdown started about a year afterwards but it was really it was a really difficult time because I could not talk about it you know because legally they scare you when you float the company I'm sure it's true anyway I mean you can get put inside for like 15 years for insider trading you know and if I start telling my friends oh you know I'm depressed I don't think I'm ever going to go back to Eve that's breaking the law in a big way so I couldn't talk about it it was really hard you know it was like keeping something locked inside you but my family encouraged me to talk about it and I think that's what really saved me actually it really saved me and I had a a lot of time to recover I was lucky because I was effectively put on gardening leave right so I had a good six to eight months of figuring stuff out in my own head fixing myself reconnecting I think that's often you lose connections to those around you to the world around you I mean that's what depression is really isn't it you are you're so isolated and lonely and you can't see or hear anything and and sometimes what people don't have is a luxury of, of space in order to re-establish those connections. I was I feel really privileged that what Eve gave me actually is six months to just reconnect with myself and with those around me. So I, I think really that's what got me through it. But it was it was really hard not being able to talk about it. When the when the announcement that I, I couldn't even really tell my parents when the it's called an RNS announcement, so it's basically like a press release that goes to all the press and online and all that stuff. When it finally went out announcing that I was leaving the business, it was like it was just a huge weight. It was just a huge weight that I'd lifted. And I could finally talk about it. I mean, my mum was like, 
I've read about, you know, it was just, it was, it was, in a way it was wonderful because I could finally, I felt I was lying to everyone around me. Everyone knew I was ill. So in a way that made it easier. They were like, we're not going to talk too much to him because he might freak out a bit. So I know it's hard to like reflect in this uh, simplistic way, but what would you say you've learned about yourself from your experience building Eve and, and leaving? Not to believe my own hype and my own ego listen to those around you people are more important than money family is more important than money cherish those that are around you because i knew, i i really did nearly lose my loved ones you know just just because i was so wrapped up in myself that for me is the biggest lesson you know there are other lessons about building businesses and brands and startups and but they're all pale into insignificance really and it, it just kind of feels wrong talking about the business learnings and lessons I certainly wouldn't float a company so early on. I certainly wouldn't make float a company that was running at a loss, which Eve was, you know, openly. I mean, it was, it was, we were raising money to put, put into marketing. I mean, we were a marketing machine. Lots of business brand lessons, but for me, the main ones are cherish those around you and, and kind of don't get too carried away with, with your own hype. What do you think is a non-negotiable for anyone looking to build a brand in today's environment, right? As in... Or build a startup, I should say, because I'd imagine potentially your answer is indeed brand. I think I think the main advice is know know what you're building. I mean that that's kind of a really, in a way, maybe a boring or trite thing to say, but but know what you're building, and it's the same for brand, right? I think my answer actually isn't invest in the brand, it, it because not all businesses need a brand in how I understand the brand, right? So if you are building a branded business then invest in the brand and, and really take it seriously. Have brand people around the table from the very beginning, if that's what you're doing. And just be really brutal with simplicity of thought. Just be really brutal with what's, what's the one thing we want consumers to remember when they come across our brand. And, and I think that will get you very far. It, it's easy, and I did it myself, to get sidetracked. And creative people often do, because you want to do everything. It's like, I want to do this and I want to do that. And when I launched Steve, it was like, we're an energy brand. We're going to do face creams and food. And it's like, uh, no, we're going to do one mattress. So just be brutal with your with sort of simplicity of thought is, is my number one piece of advice. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Leave Eve. I mean, it was like, you've become a total dick, basically. And I think you need to leave Eve. I mean, that was the, that was the most important piece of advice that anyone gave me in life, because if I hadn't have done that, and if I hadn't been pushed to do that, I'm not sure if I'd be around today. Genuinely, it was just a, a brilliant bit of advice by those around me. What would you do differently this time round if you were to start it up all again? Like what's the one really obvious thing that you would change? It's a brilliant question that, and I often think, do I have another startup left in me? You know, after Eve, do I have another startup left in me? And, and I think maybe, maybe I do, you know, um, I'm working with a lot of startups, as you know, Dan, you know, helping them with their brand and building their brands and creating their brands and creating their advertising communications. And literally doing a phenomenal job. I mean, just to be clear and give you... By the way, I'm not, that wasn't a plug. I know, really. and I wasn't about to plug you because you're too busy. But the point being, for anyone that gives me brilliant feedback on heights, I point out to them how helpful it has been to take your advice of getting brand experts around the table early on to sense check everything I'm doing. Yeah. And that's what I do. I mean, I would get brand experts around my table early on. I think 
I would definitely do that. I did that at Eve, to be fair, because it wasn't me that built the brand. It was me and the team. It was me and Sarah. We came up with the positioning. Every great day starts out for the two of us. And then people like Silas, who you've worked with, Silas, same, you know, the brilliant people who I've now brought into my own agency helped me create the brand. It's not done by one person. I'm just very good at taking the glory. It really wasn't all me, as you well know, Dan. But the, the main thing I think I do differently is not is to have have a vision and stick to it, really. And our vision when we launched Eve was to be, for everyone in the UK, to be a household brand and to be a household well-loved brand. If I did it again, yes, I'd get the same brand people around the table that I have the fortune to work with on a daily basis, but it would be to be stronger with myself, really, and, and not be seduced by crazy growth and money and promises of IPO and riches and all of that stuff authenticity be authentic if you know who you are and you know the brand you're building that's authenticity right and just stick to that I think is is what I would really that's the type of startup I'd love to run I mean it's how it's the type of person I want to be I want to be honest authentic and trusted and that's the type of business I want to have as well amazing Cuba it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show and talk about this stuff so openly thank you so much for your time thank thank you Dan that was I really enjoyed that thank you so much here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We're here to provide better funding options and better investing options. I mean, I still, 11, 12 years in, when I'm introduced somewhere or meet people and, you know, having found out a crowdfunding platform, I winks ever so slightly. It's not that I don't like crowdfunding. I think crowdfunding is great. And I think it, the term is useful, but it's a very incomplete term, but one that we've never really succeeded in in being able to, to displace. Next week is crowdfunding platform Cedars with Jeff Lynn, the co-founder turned executive chairman, and Jeff Kaliski, who took over as CEO, especially talking about their failed merger with Crowdcube. Stay tuned. If you've enjoyed this episode and you don't want to miss out on more just like it, then please get your phone out and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And if you can think of someone who'd really benefit from what you've just heard, then why not share the episode with them so they can also learn something new today as well. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.